Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in Romans chapter 9 to 11 today, The Progress of the Gospel, with a message entitled, The Stumbling Stone. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33, as we join Dr. John Newfeld. Do you remember what it was like when you were a child? You run perhaps barefoot as fast as you can, and then you stubbed your toe. Or perhaps you tripped over something and you fell on asphalt or concrete and you tore the skin right off your knee. Oh, that hurt. Now, sometimes tripping and falling is just a childhood thing, but sometimes it's very serious. When an elderly person trips and falls over something, perhaps they'll break their hip and that can be fatal. Or when a mountain climber trips over something, well, he may fall to his death. Stumbling stones or branches or loose rocks, all are the things that can trip us up, and they can all be either painful or they can even be deadly. Now, what would you think of someone who deliberately puts a stumbling stone in someone's way? Well, I think that would be a vandal, but here's what's surprising. In Romans 9, 30 to 33, it tells us that God has deliberately put a stumbling stone into Israel's path, causing her to stumble. Now, why would he do that? Well, let's read Romans 9, 30 to 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I want you to notice the first sentence. It says, What shall we say then? Or what shall we say in response to what has been heard? Paul's been speaking about God's right to choose his own people. God chose Abraham from all the people of the earth in order to create a people for himself, the Jewish people. God chose Jacob over Esau, and it says in verse 10, before they had done anything good or bad. In subsequent generations, God had hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did all of this to further his purposes. As Paul has declared in verse 21, the potter has absolute rights over the clay. Everything that Paul has been teaching is leading to the answer to a question that some have been asking. Has God's word failed? Hasn't God made eternal promises to Israel, and yet Israel rejected God's promises? Given the everlasting promises of God, how is it possible for Israel to reject her Messiah? What shall we say then? Now, let me explain. To everything that happens on earth, there is a wide-angle lens through which reality can be seen and a narrow-angle lens. The wide-angle lens views reality from the perspective of eternity. It's the view that we as human beings cannot hope to understand. It's only understood by the eternal plans of God. But at times, God reveals this perspective to us. According to Paul, God has elected his people from eternity past according to his eternal purposes. That's the wide-angle lens of our salvation. But then there is a narrow-angle lens, one from our perspective. God sees this as well, but it's the one we more readily understand. From the narrow-angle lens or the perspective of the immediate, we heard of the gospel of Christ and we decided to submit to him. 
Now, it's very important that we believe both viewpoints. For if we believe only the perspective of the wide-angle lens, we will believe that since God elects his own from eternity past, then it isn't necessary to preach the gospel and persuade people of the truth of Christ. After all, who's ever in is in, right? But if we only view things from the narrow-angle lens, then we become the authors of our own salvation, taking credit for our decisions to follow Christ. Then we move ever so quickly to a doctrine of works, what we do, and give no glory to God. Again, let me repeat myself how important it is to do what the Bible does and view things from both the wide-angle and the narrow-angle perspectives. Now, in Romans 9.30 and following, Paul will now switch perspectives. Up till now, he's been telling us about God's eternal purposes in choosing Israel and in choosing his elect. Now he will take us to the vantage point that more of us are comfortable with. How is it that Israel rejected their Messiah? What led them to make that decision? Now, now please notice verse 30. There, Paul explains the amazing phenomenon of Gentile conversion. All over the Roman world, Gentiles by the thousands and then later by their millions were turning to Christ. It was a phenomenon that would sweep the whole world. And then in verse 31 to 33, Paul speaks of another amazing phenomenon. To a large part, the Jews are hearing of Jesus, their Messiah, and his fulfillment of the scriptures and his amazing offer of grace, and they are in rejection of the gospel. Why is that? See, later on in Romans 11, Paul will switch back to the wide-angle lens and explain what God is up to, but for now... He invites us to consider this question from the narrow-angle lens perspective. According to Paul in Romans 9.30, the Gentiles who had gotten saved did not pursue righteousness at all. Now, please understand what Paul means by righteousness. He doesn't mean that they did not pursue moral ways of living. See, in Paul's day, there were, especially among the Greeks, many who did pursue moral ways of living. One needs only to read Socrates and Aristotle to discover that the ancient Greek philosophers were very concerned with morality, right living, right conduct, and living according to wisdom. And by the way, to jump to application in our day, there are a great many non-Christians today who do the same thing. Notice a moral non-Christian who tries to live a genuinely decent life, generous, kind, respectful, and so forth. Now, this phenomenon of non-Christians living decent and upright lives is called common grace. They don't live that way because they are sinful. They live that way because God has given a kind of grace that allows them the grace to live in ways that brings a measure of happiness and peace into their lives. But in Romans, when Paul says the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, he's using that word righteousness in a way he's used it throughout the book of Romans. Righteousness is always used in relation to God. And since Paul has already in Romans 3 made a persuasive case that no one seeks God, it becomes clear that the Gentiles are guilty before a holy God. They have abandoned that which is plain to them in nature. They've gone their own way. They've ignored the God who made them and who loves them. The Gentiles did not pursue the one true God. And yet, notwithstanding this reality, 
Many Gentiles in Paul's day were finding Christ, and here Paul adds, through a righteousness that comes by faith. They were told that Christ had died for them. They had trusted in Christ, and in so doing, found a relationship with God. It's a wonder of the gospel. Men and women going their own way have been captured by Christ even while they did not see God. God found them. Now then, Paul contrasts those wonderful stories of Gentile conversions with what's going on among the people of Israel. Why are they rejecting the gospel? Why? Remember, we're now asking the question not from the wide-angle lens, but from the perspective of the narrow-angle lens. What caused the Jews to reject a right relationship with God? And in order to further complicate the situation, Paul adds in verse 31 that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. The zeal that Israel had for the law, you would think, should lead them to a right relationship with God, but it didn't. So what happened? Now, pay attention to what I say next. If this were a straight contrast between Israel and the Gentiles, Paul would have said, the Gentiles did not pursue a right standing with God and yet are in a right relationship with God. But Israel, who did pursue a right relationship with God, haven't attained a right relationship with God. But did you notice? That's not what Paul says. Israel did not pursue righteousness any more than the Gentiles did. But what Israel did is pursued the law with zeal. That's the difference. And as Paul says, the law was intended to lead to righteousness. The law, if it is followed properly, would lead someone into a relationship with God. But in spite of the intent of the law, Israel did not get there. Now, please notice, Paul is admitting that the real purpose of the law of Moses is that to have a relationship with God. Jesus affirmed that. He said the entire law was summed up in two sentences, love God, love people. But instead of seeing that outcome, they saw another. They didn't love God, they didn't even know God. In John 8, 42, Jesus would say to the religious leaders, if God were your father, you would love me. And the implication is plain. After studying scripture for a lifetime, they had not become the children of God. How is that possible? Can that happen today? So what does it take to know God? Well, we'll discover more when Dr. Neufeld returns in just a minute. Let me remind you that this Christmas season, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway and award-winning artist Jay Calder will once again partner up with Back to the Bible Canada and Compassion Canada to bring you the third annual Laugh Again Christmas Tour. And we're still looking for just a few more host churches to partner with. So now is the time to give us a call and receive all the information you'll need to host this great community and church Christmas celebration. Don't wait. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We have been saying that in spite of Israel's zeal for the law, they didn't attain the goal of the law, which was righteousness or a right relationship with God. Let's think about that in terms of the Ten Commandments. Think about the first of them. You shall have no other gods before me. At the very beginning of pursuing a right relationship with God is a command. If you want a relationship with God, you must allow no competition to that. 
You'll never have a relationship with God if you allow other things to be as important as God. So, do you want to know God? Then you'll have no other gods. If you don't do that, you'll never know God. And so the Jews in Paul's day were actively pursuing the law. Now, the teachers of the law who studied the law on that day made a list of just how many laws there were, and they actually counted them up. They counted up 613 laws in the Old Testament. They said, you're required by God to obey all 613. Now, in order to help you out, the teachers of the law introduced a concept designed to help you obey all 613. It was called building a hedge around the law. And so, if the law said, don't work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees would tell you exactly what it is that constitutes work. And so they argued, among other things, that you have to understand how many footsteps were permitted on a Sabbath. Exceed the amount of footsteps, and that constitutes work. Well, you get the sense. On and on it went. Laws are added to laws. Exception clauses are included. Some allowed you to technically break one law and still be righteous. It was complicated. Now, says Paul, I want to be the first to admit how very zealous they are for the law. In chapter 10, verse 2, he will say that this zeal is not based on knowledge. Let me suggest an illustration. Imagine a husband finds out why he and his wife are always fighting. He says, boy, I know what it is. I never clean up after myself. I squeeze the toothpaste tube in the middle. I don't take my shoes off at the door, and and I don't help clean up the table after a meal. And so, Knowing this, he now constructs a set of rules, all the things that really irritate his wife. And after making a list, he gives himself to keeping the list. He becomes rigid in list keeping. He knows, for instance, how far he can walk into the house before he has to take his shoes off. Three full footsteps are permitted, no more. More would constitute a violation of the law of taking off shoes at the door. The door area, after all, consists of an area of three footsteps. And after all that, in his rigid discipline, he finds he has still not attained the goal of all of those rules, a relationship of love and intimacy with his wife. The rules themselves became his goal, and the love of the woman he had married has long been forgotten. And the reason for that is he wasn't pursuing his wife, he was pursuing rules. He wasn't in love with her, he was a legalist. His heart was not tender to her, nor did he desire her. He was making sure that all the household rules were properly kept. Now, that might not be a perfect illustration, but it does kind of get at it. After Israel kept the law, they found themselves out of sorts with God. And it may surprise you, people are still doing that today. You know, when Paul became a Christian, he saw the world so very differently than he had ever seen it before. Listen to how he describes his life before his encounter with Christ. And here I'm reading Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, don't miss this. Paul claims that he, be, before he met Christ, without fault, without error, kept the whole law. I know that many of us have been taught that that's not possible, but Paul says, I did that. See, he was disciplined. He was goal-oriented. His imagination was fired up by the law. 
but in the midst of his law-keeping, Paul was an utter reprobate. His relationship with God, like that of the Pharisees in his day, was characterized by legalism, not by a living, vibrant encounter with the God of Abraham. And that's why Paul considered Jesus an unwelcome intrusion into his life. That's why he persecuted the followers of Jesus. Now, in Romans 9, that, says Paul, is the experience of most of the zealous law keepers in Israel in his day. They, in verse 31, did not succeed in reaching the goal of the law, or they did not succeed in getting that for which the law existed. They never got a right relationship with God. Now to verse 32. Let's let's reread it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, does this verse surprise you? The chief problem that the Pharisees had is that they thought that the law was a law of works, and it never was. Now, how can I explain this? Let's let's try the following illustration. Years ago, in a city where I was the pastor of a local church, there was a food bank in that city. It was open on Wednesday only between 11 and 2 o'clock. Now, if you happened to be there during that time, you got your food. No questions asked. You just showed up. But let's say you showed up on Thursday at 5 o'clock. Well, no food. And let's say you showed up at the right time and you said, well, because I kept the law of the food bank, I have earned my food. Well, you'd be wrong. You didn't earn anything. The food was given by grace. So what was the law of the food bank there for? Well, the law was there to show you how you could find food. The food was a free gift. The law reveals how to get the free gift. Well, the same is true of the Ten Commandments, keeping the Sabbath, honoring your father and mother, refusing to envy your neighbor's goods. All of this does not earn God's blessing. But even today, some of us have the same problem. We think that when we obey, somehow we earn God's blessing. Now to verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it. That is, Israel did not pursue the law as if it were a law of faith. Rather, they pursued the law as if it were a law of works. Israel thought that obeying the law earned them God's blessing. And then Paul adds the words, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So what is the stumbling stone? Well, the stumbling stone is that we have never done anything ever at any time that makes us worthy of God's blessing. Now, I have a very vivid memory. It simply will never go away. I finished preaching a sermon years ago, and a very angry woman was making her way to the front, ready to confront me. The first words from her mouth were, saved from what? And that was evident passion. Clearly, she was fuming mad. You know, I tried to respond calmly, and I said, well, we're saved from believing that we've done anything that merits heaven or merits a relationship with God. Instead, God commands us to acknowledge that we bring nothing of any merit to him. We have all failed miserably. And she responded by saying, are you telling me that everything I've done and accomplished doesn't matter? And I affirmed that's exactly what I was saying. She said, I can't accept that. And that, my friends, is the stumbling stone. To say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Well, that's so offensive that it simply trips us up in getting to God. And it certainly tripped up the proud Pharisee with his zeal for the law. 
Now we come to verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I, that is the Lord, am laying in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Did you hear it? God himself is laying that stone in Zion and among the people of the law. And why would he do that? Why would God deliberately trip up Israel? And here we need to understand the mind of God. Our salvation will either bring all the glory to God so that there is not one thing that we can claim as having been accomplished by us, or we will not be saved at all. You're a sinner and offer to God not one thing. All of your righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. What you consider your most holy act is tainted by your sin. And what the law does is point out just how far you've fallen short, just how unacceptable your greatest sacrifices are. Let me apply it to myself personally. You know, the best sermon I have ever preached is tainted by my own desire for ego satisfaction. And even though everything in the sermon may be true, yet the one delivering it is so desperately unworthy of any praise. That's the stumbling stone. Either God gets all the praise for our salvation or we will not be saved. Now with that comes a promise. Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Thanks so much, John, for your, for your ministry today and your word today. Uh, I got to ask something, and it's really for clarification purposes, because I know sometimes I'll take bits and pieces of what people say, and I'll try to apply those over other things. But what you're not saying, I don't hear you say, is that we're not supposed to do good things just because it doesn't gain our salvation. Yeah, that's such a perceptive question, Ben, because sometimes we misunderstood, as the Pharisees do, the nature of good works. Good works follow the saved life. Good works never bring us to God. Nothing that we do is, in fact, helping our salvation. However, when God gives us the commands to do good works, what what he's really telling us to do is to live in such a way that brings help and healing to ourselves. So I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound strange. I obey God not because it's good for God. God doesn't need my obedience. I obey God because it's good for me. In other words, when I obey him, I find out that God is healing my hellishness and allowing myself to submit to his works. So there is a role of good works, and maybe that's, that's saying a lot, but you know, down in the future, we're going to talk more about how good works affects our lives. Well, that's a great word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every month, thousands of ministry friends across Canada send in their gifts to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, and we couldn't do it without them. Your gifts sustain our Bible teaching programs on this station, on our website, podcast, and mobile application. Your gifts provide all of our audio programming electronically and all of our print resources and all for free, breaking down barriers for anyone to access trustworthy Bible teaching. Your gifts provide our Young Adult Bible Engagement Podcast and website in doubt to thousands of young people every day, every month. Your kindness is critical to all we do, so thank you. And please continue to support and bless this ministry with your prayers and gifts. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425. 
That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.